They're doing it. Even Yusuf at Princeton, same thing. Those guys are traveling literally around the world, getting on a plane, coming back, playing for their school, getting on a plane, going over across seas to play in a PCA event and completing their academic commitments. These are really top student athletes and really bright kids. But you're right, Bill. Time in the air and time away from the comforts of your dorm room. Yeah. Hey, Pat, just a quick note. We try not to say, Bill, you're right. So just... <laughs> what about this this call is being recorded super low like almost unrecognizable like bill you sound like a bass like baritone bass yeah, it's pretty cool. And then, like on the computer and on my or on my phone on Spotify, it's like your voices. My normal, yeah, that's interesting. You should always listen on Alexa. Then <laughs> you like that better? It's more I, masculine. I do. Pe- yeah, okay. it's a, it, people think I have a gift when it comes to that, as opposed to <laughs> the debauchery <laughs> of my lifestyle of smoking cigars five times a week <laughs> and, and, and drink and drinking scotch, which makes my <laughs> voice low. It'll kill me by the time I'm seventy, but it's worth worth it to have a deep voice. Fans, we are back for another edition of The Roundup, catching up with weekly headlines, results, and news from the professional tour and college squash. But this episode is going to be a special college edition. The season's kicking off, and um, we're excited to bring this to you. I'm Connor Malley, joined by Bill Buckingham. And because this is a college squash edition, we wanted to bring in some perspective on uh, who could help us the best. So what do we got going on? We have former coach of... Hobart and William Smith, and before that, the coach at Bates, we have Pat Kosker as a special guest. Welcome, Pat. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Excited to see you guys. Yeah, yeah. I know you're a big listener of the show, Pat, right? Religiously. Every <laughs> Tuesday morning, I wake up hoping that it has pinged my Spotify, and at 6.45 a.m., listening. And occasionally yeah. it does. You know what? For anyone that's listening, that actually isn't sarcasm at all. We Am appreciate I the first that. to listen every Tuesday morning or Monday night at 11.45? Craig Thorpe Clark, I think, gets early. He's also 60 years older than you, so he probably gets up <laughs> yeah, yeah. more times than you do. a little bit less going on than I do with yeah. the two children in my house, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Connor, so before we jump into the college squash and talk to Pat, only because by the time we, we would talk about it, the Malaysian Open just finished this morning for a little PSA, quick PSA roundup. The finals were not great. I watched them on video. Guad beat a solid three. And then, as we talked about, Noral Talia basically just threw her racket on the court and, and won in 18 minutes over uh, Rachel Arnold. Great job by Rachel making it to the final in her home country. But that being said, honestly, the and I won't go blow by blow, but people who have PSA TV, I implore you, beg you, watch the trophy ceremony. It is epic. It's an epic one, Connor. It's had everything that we want in a trophy ceremony. Where does this rank? Where does this rank? It's right up there. It, the dis- okay, so We have the World Team Championships fireworks debacle. Yeah. We've got Paris Open with more of a, a theater play going on with character actors that were, that was one of my favorites. Yes. Is this number three? Where yeah, we were- I, I think it trumps, it was like more mellow than Paris. So just picture that. So you could tell they didn't rehearse, which is always great. They came out with tables. It's great when they come out and they're holding the tables and they're like wandering around the court with tables, wondering where to put them because they didn't talk about where to put them beforehand. So they went from one side of the court to the other side of the court and then finally got it settled. And then a a mystery second table showed up. And I was like, why is there a second table out there? It's, do you really need a second table? And then I saw the trophies come out. Dude, Connor, as a trophyophile, if that's a word, you would have had an orgasm watching, seeing those trophies come out. By far. Oh, I'm looking at them now. I'm looking at them now. <laughs> they are oh. real. They are so big. I love it. They are so, I love it. So you remember we talked about Amir Evans' Portland trophy from last week, the Oregon Open trophy? The runner-up yes. trophies in Malaysia are, are, are bigger than his trophy. <laughs> they are monsters. Wow. They are absolutely epic. Nora Tayeb couldn't even hold it. She had to put it down. She said it's the heaviest thing she's ever picked up. And she has like a 30-pound kid. And she has a baby. <laughs> so there was the trophies. But... Better than that, they, they, the dignitaries who came out to talk, and I don't know who they were, and I'm not going to malign them because they're probably, like, if I ever went into Malaysia, they'd probably have me shot. But, but the first guy who came out in a wrinkled short sleeve shirt came out with a cane and ambled onto the court. You know how, like, you would call dignitaries onto the court first so they'd be there ready to talk? Instead, they had 75 people on the court, and then they said, please welcome to the court, blah, 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 whatever his name was. And this guy came 
hobbling out onto the court and it took him forever to get onto the court. And he finally did get on the court. And then he talked and he talked and he covered everything from growing up as a kid in Egypt to sweeping floors, to Malaysian squash, to the Olympics, to Egypt, to how great the sponsors were, to how the future of Malaysia and the Olympic, it just went on and on. It was epic, epic. And his shirt was so wrinkled, like I couldn't stop staring at it. It was so wrinkled. And then they, each time they introduced like Rachel Arnold as the runner up, nobody like told Rachel Arnold what to do. So she came out and she figured it was over. And so each player who got introduced would walk over to the sidewall and lean against the sidewall after they hauled their 75 pound trophy. And then the MC would say, Oh, Rachel, come on over. We want you to say a few words. And that happened for all four times with all four players. They all retreated with their trophy to the wall and then got called back. But the best was they called the king onto the court. The king of Malaysia. I think I was told by PSA TV that it was the king of the province in which the king played. So it wasn't the actual king. But every time he came out, everybody bowed to him, which was really awesome. Oh, wow. <laughs> but he also was like a thousand. And they announced him and he was sitting in the top row. And they said, he's going to come out and present the winner's trophy. And as you can imagine, the winner's trophy didn't get announced for another 20 minutes because it took him forever to get on the court. It was just so funny. And then all the bowing. So watch it. I, did, I don't do it justice by talking about it. You really have to watch it and watch for the nuance of it. It was absolutely spectacular. Bill, I don't, I don't know if you've secured your MC role in Malaysia now <laughs> or just have a permanent ban. I, it could go either way. I don't care. Do, it was worth it. It's worth it. <laughs> Pat, do you share Bill's sort of scrutiny of trophy presentations? Hey, Rami singing, one of the highlights of my own squash career. As long as next time Hisham should be there too, he should get out there with your brother and sing. That, that he can be back at dancer. <laughs> Maybe for the Olympics, right? Wow, that would be. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Just appointment <laughs> viewing. Appointment okay. viewing. So on to that, I just had to throw that in there because by the time we put out a PSA show again, that will be old news. But go watch it. Watch the trophy ceremony. It is really funny. And it's also I could say to future trophy ceremonies, please rehearse the trophy ceremony. Just or don't for my entertainment value. <laughs> All right, Pat, where were All we? Right. College squash. <laughs> College squash. Pat Cosker. So, Pat, welcome to the show again. Give us a little bit of your background. Obviously, I, I met you when you, uh, I think I first met you at the Newport Steamer, which you and uh, our friend Chris mm. Smith, the athletic director at St. Paul's uh, School, run in the summertime. And at that point, I think you were the Bates coach. And then you moved on from being the Bates coach and went to coach Hobart and William and Smith. So talk about your mm -hmm. squash background and, and where you are now. Yeah, I'll keep it short because I'm a little bit on the older side now. But grew up in New Jersey, played high school squash for uh, Jeff Mitchell with the Chatham Club. And then ultimately, fast forward, his daughter ended up playing for me at Bates, which was just a thrill of our team in 2015. So that's a cool little 360 moment in my squash career in life. Uh, my dad got me into the game a long time ago. He was uh, a player in New York City, the West Side YMCA way back in the day, hardball and all that. And I bounced around a little bit. I was in Rhode Island. I was I coached at Northwestern for a year. The 1998-99 season, we won the, what is that, the Chafee Trophy over Mark Talbot's Stanford team back in the day, which was awesome. I was a 21-year-old college coach. So pretty cool moment. Um, and then, uh, yeah, did some work on the side with squash in Chicago. And then I ultimately, after 9-11, moved back to the East Coast. I was with Mike Riley at Portsmouth Abbey School, which is where basically Chris and I reenacted, Smitty and I reenacted the Newport Steamer, which has just been a thrill as well, reconnecting with the junior crowd and then also the just the amazing families and squash community in Rhode Island and in New England. And then I took the Bates job in 2008. I, I went to Bates, played squash and baseball at Bates, took the Bates job in 2008, and then in 2019, left to come here to the Finger Lakes to coach the Hobart and William Smith teams and recently resigned, stepped away from coaching and still involved, missing it for sure. Miss the kids, miss the mentoring and the tutoring, but also having a great time reconnecting with my family and being home a little bit more and um, excited to be with you guys and watch from the sidelines this year. So when I saw that you had resigned from Hobart William Smith, obviously, whenever, anytime I see a college squash coach resign, I have to go and start doing a deep dive and see what you did wrong. I didn't see anything. I was yeah. looking. I was looking for. He yeah. got out clean. Yeah. No yeah, I try and keep a low profile. Sometimes it's hard, especially when you show up on a Squash uh, SQR podcast. But so far, I think I, I've scrubbed my email and, uh, and internet 
enough. But but no, I, it was one of those things that my kids are at a, an age, they're eight and 10, just trying to be around a little bit more. They're, I have two daughters. And I think it's really important as a father to be around for his daughters. And um, this is the time where I'd just like to be a little bit more present for them. And never say never, right? We Who knows what's going to happen next? And I do still have a, a passion for squash and, and love coaching and mentoring and tutoring and all that. So we'll see what happens. But no, I just had a little bit of a midlife freak out, want to be <laughs> home a little bit more moment at 48 years old, 47 years old. And uh, so here I am with you guys. <laughs> that's a, that's a come down, man. I don't know if it's funny, it's funny you mentioned uh, that because I was watching uh, like a, a semi-serious like drama last night. I don't even know what it was on Netflix. And the guy was like about to be executed. And they said, any last words? He goes, delete my browser history. <laughs> and, you see, and it was serious. It was like a serious show. And I just laughed. I was like, that's probably a pretty yeah. good idea. <laughs> yeah. When you're with college kids, yeah. buses and hotels and all that stuff, the privacy screens, and they're doing stuff that TikTok and Snapchat and all that. It just makes what, what adults are doing just look like child's play. Yeah. So I, I feel pretty good about my my reputation and that. So far, so good. We'll see. You know, we'll see. Next couple months, might, the winter might be tough, but I don't know. We'll see. So we're going to talk about, let's talk about the CSA, the new season coming up. So a couple changes happening in, in the season. We'll, let's go over the structure. So first of all, and we talked about it with Gilly a bit in the episode two weeks ago regarding the biggest change probably in squash is that the top 12 teams are now going to play for the national championship, as it were, as opposed to the top eight. And it's going to be men's and women's on the same weekend, which, which is a what, long overdue, right? That's what that's one of the biggest changes. And Pat, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I know you're opinionated when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah, I love it. I'm... First of all, I don't, you guys may remember this, but I think in 2016, House Squash, we tried the co-ed weekend. I think it was the C or B, maybe it was C, D, E flights. I can't remember. And it was messy. We were up in New Haven and it was just teams everywhere. It was a dual coach at that point. You're right, literally running in between two different matches of five courts or three courts going at the same time, six courts, 10 courts. And, and it was messy. However, it was a lot of fun, and the, the energy at, in Payne Whitney was just incredible. And so I've always been a proponent, putting it all together, making a spectacle of it, a little bit of events, getting an events experience. And I just think it's better. The energy, we've talked about this a lot. You guys talk about this a lot with the other sports and, and how they showcase the sport. I think that's what College Squash is trying to do, is showcase a national championship. I think it's going to be great. I also personally think that we should that the team should have to qualify for that championship. I think that back in the day, uh, and I was in some of those conversations, it was a sort of a kumbaya. Everyone plays, bring everyone you want. If you have seven, great. If you have 15, great. Bring everyone. Everyone plays. Everyone gets a chance. I think we're in a different era, so to speak. I think we're at a different time where, and especially for the reputation of our game, I think it is important to to make it a competition. Play regular season matches uh, have your bomb squatters or your JV or your subs in there against teams that you, you, you're going to be competitive with and beat and all that. But for the nationals, make it a national championship and make it a showcase. And and maybe that's where TV comes in. Maybe that's where better access to streaming. And, and I know the Spectre Center's on it and all that. But um, I love that. I love tearing it down a little bit. I was, you know, when, we were, when I was in the NESCAC debates, I was a huge fan early on about with cutting down from 11 teams to at least eight teams or the most eight teams in that conference championship. I think last year was, I think the first year that they did that. And yeah, there are always going to be some teams on the outside. I think when your team is on the outside and again, easy for me to say from where I'm sitting now, you go back to your athletic director and say, Hey, yeah, we didn't make it. And this is why we didn't make it. And this is what we need next. Maybe it's better uh, financial aid. Maybe it's, more access to recruits, maybe it's more courts. I don't know. Each program is different, but I think it is important that we start to pare things down, make it a competition, make it a showcase, and then hopefully the sponsorships follow, the the TV follows, all that follows, and especially as we lead into the Olympics. I think it's really important that we start to to make it more of a spectacle, more of a showcase, and, and legitimize it. When, when you say qualify, can you just elaborate a little bit on that? If you could pen the, the structure you want, what would that look like? Each conference has a different number of teams, so it's tough to say across the board. I guess I'll use the, the NESCAC maybe as an example. 11 teams in the NESCAC, right? So there's 22, 11 men's, 11 women's teams. 
um, up until last year, all 11 teams would play in that championship. And so teams 9, 10, 11, ranked 9, 10, and 11th, would play a play-in match on Friday night at 5 o'clock at night. So they're missing class to go to Trinity or go up to Maine or go out to Hamilton or wherever. They play a play-in match against a, a higher-seeded team. They would lose 9-0 or 8-1. Then they would turn around and play again at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock on Saturday morning against the fourth seed or the fifth seed or the third seed or the second seed and lose 9-0 or 8-1, and then they would go home. And at the same time as that's happening, schools are talking about how to reduce budgets, how to limit kids from missing classes. Why are we spending two nights in a hotel as opposed to one, right? And at the same time as colleges are, are some colleges, some are, are fine and, and have unlimited access to, to resources and and hotel rooms and all that. But the smaller schools, the Division three schools and, and the newly formed schools are, are, are shrinking budget. That's just a trend in, in college athletics. And so these things are happening at the same time. And, and so I think as squash starts to legitimize itself even more, making that tournament specifically eight teams or even six teams and having teams seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, to qualify, have to win a certain number of matches, have to beat a certain number of teams. So sorry, and you're talking about the each conference, how you can make that more meaningful, but then to play into the national championships, is that what you're... I think ultimately, I think that's where College Squash has to go. I think that's where College Squash is going. But yes, I think ultimately, it just the... We just saw field hockey and soccer championships, the tournament fields being formed, right? There's one automatic qualifier. Maybe there are two at-large bids from each conference. And then you have 12 teams or you have 16 teams or maybe even 18 or 24 teams in the nationals. But those are the teams that qualify to be there as opposed to you played your regular season. Now here is the national tournament. I don't, I'm not trying to exclude teams, right? I, I think that it, it's, a, it's an interesting debate because squash needs to grow, right? We need more teams. We need more players. I think we also need to legitimize the format to make it more like other sports so that governing bodies look at squash and say, oh yeah, okay, that looks more like tennis or that looks like soccer, that looks like baseball, whatever. And generally that's been a trend, especially at the smaller schools these past few years that SCAT Conference, Liberty League Conference are reducing the number of teams that qualify for their postseason in general, postseason meaning their conference championships, and then also the NCAA, ultimately their national championship tournament, whatever that looks like. And I think for that to happen in squash, we obviously, it's pretty obvious, we need more conferences, right? There's we only really the, the four at this well, point. Well, I think what really needs to happen, you're right, Bill, I think what really needs to happen is that teams need to play each other. So one of the things we, we struggled with in the NESCAC, and it's getting better, but one of the things that we struggled with in the NESCAC is all of the teams playing each other. So that means Colby College driving out to Clinton, New York to play Hamilton, right? Whether it's snowing or not, or it's January or it's November, whatever that looks like, kids abroad in November, whatever, Colby has to play Hamilton and, or Hamilton has to go to Bates or Hamilton has to go to Wesleyan. That wasn't happening. When I first started at Bates, that wasn't happening. And there were a number of reasons why. It was just the, the level of play between teams at the top and between teams at the bottom. Khan College has a limited number of courts. And so a lot of teams just didn't want to play Khan College at Khan College. And so Khan College would travel a little bit more than everyone else. But again, I think, and same in the Liberty League. There was what my first year or second year here at, at ACWS, Rochester didn't want, to, didn't want to play. And if we're 45 minutes away, we could do that on a, on a Wednesday night. Night and we'll go home and get our sandwiches on the way. That's not a big deal. But we should play so that. At the end of January, we can say we played every team in the conference. We were five and two against everyone, and we're the third seed in the conference. Right. Right. And that wasn't happening. So it's hard to seed, it's hard to rank teams if they don't play everyone in the conference. And that was what's happening in a lot of these conferences. What kind of pressures are coaches facing when it comes to scheduling? Like, I mean, it really is, you're talking, there's geography, there's conference, there's budget, there's facilities, there's a lot of factors there at play. So 
is it truly left up to the coaches figuring this out or is it the athletic directors? Like, how do you guys balance that? Yeah, that's a great question, Connor. It, so it, it goes both ways. So generally we're all collegial. Obviously we're, well, coaches are all friends and we see each other all the time and have dinner and drinks and the whole thing. There's obviously competition and we want to win, but we're friends at the end of the day and colleagues. And so we'll talk about this in, in February, March about we should play next year and Hey, we went to you last year. And so you should come to us. But ultimately, we submit that, coaches submit that, that schedule, that tentative schedule to athletic directors and to administrators. And they say, hey, okay, great. It looks like you're trying to go to Maine. You have three nights overnight up there. Can we do it in two nights? And, oh, great, New York City? Wow, okay. Maybe we should stay in, in New Jersey and play Princeton instead of going to Columbia. And so it's, that's, I think, the constraint is, is money resources at a lot of smaller schools for sure i know of of a handful probably even more coaches that just don't have overnights and they have to either wait to the conference championship to play or they have to entice teams to come out to play them and then they have to beg for for one overnight to go to some round robin which we've moved away from which college class has moved away from a little bit and so it's tricky at the same time as that's happening you have the Ivy schedule, which is just rock solid. And that's yeah. years that's out. That's really, yeah, right? that's so locked in. Which is great. Start. And that's what, that's ultimately, <laughs> it, should, it would be amazing if the Liberty League and Scott could have that same deal, but it's just not there yet. Is it just um, squash? squash? That's what yes. I was going to ask. Oh, for Liberty League, yeah. like their other sports are locked in and they play home and away. Totally. And it's a, okay, so totally. it's just, is, yeah. are there any other sports that for those schools that are in the same boat as squash? I would imagine, I think something like, like rowing, some of the smaller schools, track and field, swimming and diving, you can pick and choose where you're going to go and when and, mm. and play maybe on a Saturday afternoon as opposed to Friday night to miss classes and, and all that. But it really all comes down to resources. And it and I think one of the biggest challenges in the CSA is that the, the disparity of resources between some of the top Ivy and, and D1 schools and then some of the smaller D3 schools. You've seen that at Dickinson these past couple of years. You see it at Chandler even some of that and, and Liberty League teams that are reducing, um, limiting resources for financial aid, for international financial aid. It's tricky. And I think that's, it's a weird sort of headspace to be in because at the same time, we're trying to grow the sport. We're trying to increase the visibility and, and towards the Olympics and, and NCAA status, which is self in the room. So that's the magic bullet to all this, right? Is the NCAA, NCAA, NCAA inclusion. NCAA status because... If, and I think, you know, it's legitimate. I see both sides of this is if NCAA, if there's no Learfield Cup standings for squash, if that doesn't count towards the Learfield, then why would administrators and athletic directors invest all this time and money and effort? And unless donors and, and supporters are funding new buildings and, and scholarships, which in some cases they are, as we know, why would the small liberal arts school pay for those things when they could pay for soccer and lacrosse and football and field hockey and, and other sports that actually count towards the overall standings at the end of the year and give the school, the institution more esteem. And the drawback now of the Olympics, if there is a drawback of the Olympics, is the Olympics being professionalized. So back in the day, if we got into the Olympics and it could be a chance for college kids to play in the Olympics, which there's mm -hmm. really not going to be, obviously, at this point, a college could look at it and say, hey, squash program might be a way to get our college on the map because we could have an Olympian. And I, I think, I, I don't know, Bill, I think I, I heard what Gilly said last week and I, and I agree with him. There's some schools in Drexel and maybe UVA and Harvard and Yale might be a handful of those, Columbia, where they are set up to house a, a future Olympian. Future uh, Olympian, that's the key, but yeah. they, they wouldn't be a student at the time like it used to be back in the day where college yeah. track kids used to win gold medals. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. I think the Pan Am Games are a great case study. HWS right now, Rafa Abuha, she played at the Pan Am Games at mixed doubles, your thing. You know, she's looking forward to the mixed doubles season this year <laughs> at HWS versus Rochester. But yeah, but that's a thrill. She had a great time. The, her Olympic Association helped to fund that. Mm -hmm. It's on the school's website. It's on the squash website. It's on the squash Instagram and everyone wins, right? Where does that go? Who knows where that goes? But I think that is something that some of the Ivies are starting to consider in the same way that maybe 
students in the early mm -hmm. stages of trying to figure out how to help these student athletes increase their own visibility and, and elevate them. Is there any NIL squash players that you know about, Pat, in squash right, right now? I think, I think a couple of years ago, a couple of the UVA boys tried to get out there on Barstool and all that. I have a feeling they were shut down pretty quickly, maybe <laughs> through coaches and, and also just peer pressure, like, okay, you're not the football guy or basketball guy, you're the squash guy. But but no, I'm with it. I think it's great. I think on a local level, I'm a big kind of community service, mm -hmm. local supporter guy. I think, especially where I am now, Rochester and, and HWS and uh, Cornell and Hamilton, some of these kids should go out there and go to the pizza place and try and, yeah. try and get some free buffalo wings and just go for it. I, yeah, I don't think it's ridiculous if, if you like make it hyper local and just say, yeah. hey, why not? Why not? Yeah. 500 bucks here can mean a lot to a college student. Um, Absolutely. So, so question, you have had to work with two different director of athletics. When I, you're, four, I was, I, yeah, I had two at, at each place. I was, you drove, yeah. a, Sorry, you drove a couple out, huh, Pat? Well done. Yeah, so, exactly. so, so even better for, with the question of officiating budgets, and behind that is almost like zero by comparison to all the other sports. What is that even conversation like with the uh, dire director of athletics? Do they, are they like, hey, great, no money there? Or wait, what's going on with the sport? It depends on how you posit that conversation, Connor. I think if you come at it through the lens of equity, it's hard to argue that squash shouldn't have money in the budget to pay for officials. If you're just saying, hey, this is what squash has tried to starting to do. We need an extra $2,500 for this. That's a different conversation. So I never had an athletic director push back on the idea because once you compare it to field hockey, soccer, football, basketball officials, obviously, but it just depends on how you, how you talk about that. And ultimately finding that money might be on that administrator to say, okay, great. It's going to cost you $5,000 for officials at every match. Cool. You're going to pay 3000 of that and we'll fund 2000 of it and figure out how you're going to get that 3000, whether it's from fundraising, whether it's from your gift account, what, however that is. That's a tricky one too, because the last thing you want to do out of your gift account is don't want to pay for officials. They don't want to pay for hotel rooms and buses, and they want to pay for gear and, and equipment and, and things that will help the student athlete experience, not things that they think that the school should already be paying for. So I think it's, it is a tricky conversation. Frankly, it, it just, it's, I think that's a location issue as well is schools like HWS, maybe Rochester, maybe Cornell, Hamilton where I was up at Bates and Colby and Bowden to find three officials on, on Friday night or Saturday or Sunday to drive between those matches, to go there for 200, 250 bucks to get beat up yeah, by college kids. It's just not, that's not an attractive task. We're very much in this chicken and egg problem where because there's no pool of funds, we're not really helping to identify towns versus if you think about this, and I say this many times, it's, absolutely ridiculous when we compare ourselves to other sports that this is self-reft yeah yeah and the old i guess guard... i guess tennis to be fair yeah. i should say well, tennis the, but and and i know i've heard you guys talk about it but the old guard will say isn't that great about squash and i agree with that i think it is great with that we can do it it's just when it goes wrong it goes really wrong and we've seen it every weekend we'll see it tonight we'll see it tomorrow we'll see it on sunday where Somebody is accusing another team of cheating and, and all that. And, and that's just a bad look, especially now that the Olympics are on the horizon and we're trying to legitimize even more than we already are. It's just a bad look. And yeah, I don't know. I don't have the answer, but you're right. I think finding, I don't know if it's the money so much as it is finding the people that will go to the places. I think if you're going to ref the Trinity Harvard match or the Yale Princeton match, you need to ref the Williams-Bates match. And is there, are there two or three people in Williamstown, Mass, that will go out there on Saturday in June, or in, in January to ref that match for 500 bucks? That's that's a challenge. Yeah, and I don't think it's strictly regional. And just our your friend, Pat, and my friend, and Connor's friend, actually, Mike Riley, I just saw him tweet last night. He's, yeah. fl he's flying to San Francisco to referee a junior tournament. Mm -hmm. So San, San Francisco's a major yeah. metropolitan area. So to have to Mike Riley fly out there to do a junior tournament speaks oh. to the lack of refereeing tree-wide. Totally. And with the steamer, I won't disclose the number that we pay Mike to be there. And he's, he walks around and then there's sometimes where it's like, hey, Mike, go on court one and watch that. You know, sit there and rep that. Match. And then 
that's craziness, right? Because he's in and out and he's around, but is he really refing? What's his role there? What's the responsibility? And that, that I think we've gotten into that, where in college matches, we have guys up top at the Spectre Center walking around and, oh, no, that's a let. That's not a stroke. And yeah. it's game two and a half, and, and the kids on the it's, are like, who is that guy? Why did he just... Yeah, how, mu- how much money do you pay him, did you say? Yeah, so Connor, we had a little technical dif- difficulty with Pat there, but we're back. Pat, as soon as I asked you how much you actually pay Mike Riley, your computer shut down. <laughs> I'm not sure the two are related or not, but yeah, I appreciate you letting us know. That's a lot of money. I can't believe you pay him that much. <laughs> I know. He's a lucky man. He's that's lucky crazy. Man. Nobody's, yeah. Nobody's flying private all the way to San it's Francisco. The fa- it's the family discount for Riley. <laughs> yeah, that's how he affords the, the Trans Am Camaro. The, exactly. Before we get into the actual teams for college, just... I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention one of the coaches who moved on this year and retired, probably the most decorated coach in college squash history. And obviously the the most well-known college coach in the history of the game, Paul Asiante moved on, retired after just a unbelievably historic career at Trinity. And Pat, I know you are very good friends with the man we all call coach. And I just want, if you could, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this, just reflect on Paul Asiante. Yeah. The first thing I'll say is that he now is the best assistant coach in college squash because he officially has not left. I don't know if we're ever going to get him to leave, to be perfectly honest. He's a lifer for sure. And it's in him. Moose is lucky to have him next to him in the office there still at Trinity. But but no, Coach and I talk every day. We're on a text chain. We talk about everything from our children to squash to life to the whole thing. And he's been hugely instrumental in my development, my career in those moments where you need somebody to either set you straight or to help you and to support you, just like he has with hundreds of student athletes that that he's been with at Trinity. I was lucky to be not only to have his friendship, but to be competing against him. And so he was the, obviously the gold standard that Trinity men's program is the gold standard for a long time, arguably still. And, and to be in the same conference and same league and competing twice a year against him, it just really shaped me as a coach, shaped us as a program at Bates. And I can't thank him enough. He's one of the, those guys that I go to weekly, if not more than bi-weekly, for sure. To build on that quickly, and I've said this before on other podcasts where it, it really is remarkable the number of talents that uh, Coach Asante has. And we talked about that. But one of his superpowers is the number of relationships he can maintain. Yeah. Yeah. Like you feel connected. He's sending emails, text messages. Like it is on a weekly basis. It's got to be north of a hundred. And he also knows he's aware of what's happening still. So you, like you said, hundreds of people in his life that text him just like I do every day. But when we talk, he knows exactly what we're talking about all the time. And we, it might've been two days ago, I was asking him about something with my daughters or something. And he's like, oh, hey buddy, how's that? How did that work out? And mm-hmm. like, how do you even remember that? Because there's probably some guy who's getting married. There's probably some guy who's getting divorced. There's probably some guy whose kid is sick right now. And you're dealing with that. And I just asked you about some, should I enter my kid in soccer at the age of eight years old or not? And that's the most important thing. And that's where he is in that moment, which that's a skill. That is a superpower is to be in that moment with everyone that you're with all the time, consistently and at his age. And and obviously he's had some health things. And so to be able to be there with somebody like me, who I don't know how much value, how much I give him every day. I don't know what, what I offer to him. But he, it, it's just remarkable. And I, I will truly, I'm lucky in that way to have him. There's others. Mike Riley is somebody like that too for me. And obviously Chris Smith is, we're colleagues and, and buddies and same age and all that. But but there are others like that where he is like a father to me for sure. Yeah. So what do you think? And I'm not sure if it's different with Coach Asiante and Moose because Moose paid, played for him. Asiante staying there. I think of Shashevsky, Shashevsky at Duke for so long, and then he retired, and they the new coach came on. But Shashevsky kept an office like right next yeah. to him, and he's at every game, and he's behind the bench, and he's not gone. So it's, at some point, is it like better that look clean break, move on? This is my program now. Just that talk about that dynamic a little bit. I think for them, and again, I'm putting myself into that office, and and coach and I have spoken a little bit about this, but I think for them it'll work because Paul's smart, and he'll know exactly when to dip out. He'll know. Whereas, and, and he doesn't have the ego. That's the other thing. He, some people think that he does. He doesn't, he's not doing it for himself and for the records and for trophies and wins. He's doing it for the boys. And so he'll know 
when Moose needs him to go. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, that's that awareness is remarkable because many of us would just stay for our own ego or because I want the win. I want the, to be in that picture with the trophy and all that stuff. When Sharaf won last year, you, you could see it. He was happy for Sharaf, right? Mm-hmm. He, it, that wasn't a Trinity, it was a Trinity thing. And he was proud of the boys, but Sharaf won for the boys and for coach. And Paul just drove the van. You know what I mean? Like he, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. He would probably say the same thing. He just happened to be there and set up the food in the hotel and the bus and all that. But that program is culture. That, that culture, that's the result of that. And that's what he, that's what he's created is the culture that they step into a program. Um, I was lucky enough also, this is a, a sort of a side, but Alice Ann Wilbur, who's a women's soccer coach here at William Smith College, same thing, right? She's coaching and she's doing the X's and O's and, and strategizing and scouting and filming and all that. Those women know that when they step on the field, they're playing for something that's much, much bigger than themselves. And, and they're not playing for the, co- they're playing for the program. And that's, that was the model that was set. And that's something that we tried to create at, at Bates, but it's impossible because that takes years. That takes hundreds of conversations. That takes hunt, thousands of hours in your office talking to a student athlete about all sorts of things, mom, dad, girlfriend, boyfriend, school, everything. And a lot of coaches don't do that. They don't want to put that time and effort and work in. And Paul, that's why he is the legend because that's what he's done. And to officiate weddings and to go to births of kids and all that, that's the byproduct of that. And that's priceless. Maybe yeah. if the coach of Bates didn't leave for Hobart William Smith after a couple maybe they could, maybe I mean, could have developed that. Maybe. I'm I just know, saying. But, that guy just tipped out of town and he just jetted <laughs> 500 miles west. I know. It's, yeah, I think in that case, to answer that question, I think that they are smart enough that the Moose and Paul will, are smart enough and aware enough of all the things I just said. To be able to have that conversation, maybe they've even already had it where, hey, listen, on March 1st, I'm out and I will move my office and it's your show. I would also say, and we were talking about a few minutes ago, the institution probably has some plans. I don't oh, know yeah. what those plans are, right? The institution, Trinity College and, and the president and the athletic director have probably already, and the trustees have probably already sat down and said, okay, Paul's going to move on and, and this is maybe where we want to go. Who knows? But in the meantime... Paul will communicate exactly how he feels and he will understand the feelings that Moose has. He'll see, he'll be able to see it. Maybe there's going to be a night. Um, I can already imagine there's a night there where Moose wants to say something to the boys in practice and Paul is over there and maybe Moose wants to have his own voice and it, right. And maybe Paul steps aside or, and Moose is a smart, capable person and he'll be great. He already is great. And Paul will know, Paul will know for sure. So get into the season a little bit. We'll, t- we'll talk about the women. Harvard University, when's the last time they didn't win the national championship? I, I can't even yeah. remember. I-, I don't know if I'm old enough to go back that far. They look like they're returning their whole lineup again. But also Trinity, who beat Harvard last year in the regular season, 7-2, I think it was, and then lost 5-4 in the championship, returning most of their lineup also. Princeton, the other, the, the third team, preseason ranked anyways, also returning most of their lineups. While the women's game seems like it's been Harvard dominated for the last eons. I don't know how long ago it was. I think they won eight or nine straight national championships. There, there's some good competition this year with those two teams. And Trinity showed last year that Superman has a little, there's a little kryptonite. They can be beat. They can believe like Ivan Drago, like he is a man, right? Uh, yeah. First thing I'll say is that it's a long, this is a marathon. And, it, and the preseason, Ryan Gilly said it last weekend too, and, and I love how you jinxed him again, Bill, but the, <laughs> it's a marathon. Preseason rankings, ratings, all that stuff, yes, it's meaningful. Ladder spots, all that. But when you get into February and late February and March, it's a whole different animal. And you can throw all that stuff out of the window. So I think that's what you saw last year is you maybe saw a, a talented Trinity team that that had some real skill and ability and obviously well coached with Wendy and Harvard just stayed on that line, stayed consistent. And at the end of the day, that was what pulled them through this year will be really interesting because you're right. I think Trinity reloaded, but then also added a little bit. I'm the traditionalist that Mike and Hamid and, and Luke, they do such a great job with the women at Harvard. It's, it's hard to bet against them 
because it's such a system and they have it down. Obviously, they have it down. It's worked. There's a huge culture piece there, which only they know what they do day to day. Mike's wife helps with that, I know. And so there's, it's hard to bet against that. It's hard to rule them out. At the end of the day, there's the squash matches are played on the court. And so if somebody comes in and they're healthy and they're motivated and they're playing for their sister and their brother, then uh, it might happen for them, regardless of ranking your rating. And Trinity, I like Trinity. I really do. I joke about this, that they're probably arguably my second favorite NESCAC team out there, but they're <laughs> super talented for sure. And I also wouldn't, Bill, put Yale off to the side either. Yale's close. I also will say that the Stanford Cardinal, the Talbots are there and they're back. And that Nick is doing an amazing job. He's the man out there for the women and, and with Mark. And I just think it'll be interesting to see what happens with them. For sure. It's inter- so they jumped way up on, and again, as we've yeah. talked about a bunch of times, is that, that the preseason rankings are basically are, are off of ratings, so it's hard to say who's really strong. But last year, Stanford finished 11th overall in the country, and this year their preseason ranked four. Yeah, so they, yeah, they have that, some stud. They have some studs. I, I also think that they just got a little bit unlucky. They had some kids take some jobs and were off campus and couldn't compete and all that last year. And and mm-hmm. the women's one of the things that I think one of the issues that some of the women's teams have is that they struggle with numbers with fill, filling out that nine ten yeah. lineup spot. And and my teams have struggled with that sometimes too, where you have seven studs or eight studs, and then you're down there at eight nine and you're mailing it in. And that's challenging, especially the smaller yeah. schools. Yeah, going in knowing that you're like, "Hey, we're mm-hmm. giving up two two points." Like that makes a pretty big deficit. Yeah, um, and it's a really hard message to send to your team because now one, two, three have more of a target on their back. They have more pressure on their back. The last thing you want to do is add pressure to these student athletes. They already have a ton of pressure on them. They're coming from class. They're away from their homes. They're, it's hard. It's really hard to play this game in college and get on that bus for five hours and, and then sit in a hotel room and eat Panera or whatever. And, and it's challenging. And, so, yeah. and then you put them up against a, a, a national champion from some other country and okay, go win it for the team. That's hard. You know? So do these kids, Pat, and, and your history, when you think about, and, and maybe more in the, maybe in the, more in the Ivy league, but maybe also in NESCAC, do players get up to play certain teams because I know this sounds dumb, but I've always thought about this because they didn't get into that school. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. Or a coach didn't email me back. So I want to beat that team. Yeah, okay. of course. Of course, Bill. Yeah. That's, that's Ohio state, Michigan. That's Nebraska, Colorado. That's everywhere for sure. I think it's magnified in squash because it is so personal and it's such a small community that when, when I didn't email a kid back, and he ends up at a rival school. And now it's me versus him. Now that's ridiculous. I'm not playing the match, but yeah, he wants to beat my team. And yes, of course, I would also imagine that at the Ivy League, that's even more accentuated, right? Like I really wanted to go to Harvard and I ended up at Columbia. Still an amazing school, My right? life is ruined. Yeah, exactly. Is- <laughs> I'm going to be okay. I'm at Stanford in the sun, as opposed to at Harvard in the cold, but I'm going to be okay. Yeah. But yes, of course that plays into it. Yeah. I'll also say, I think what's really interesting is UVA and Drexel too. And and I know maybe we could, we'll get into it more, but the fact that they can legitimately give athletics squash scholarships and, and Harvard cannot and Yale cannot and Stanford and uh, Princeton cannot. I think that's just, that's a game changer. I'm frankly, I'm surprised that they haven't won yet. Maybe it's coming. Maybe it's coming this year or next year. I, I think with, with Mark and, and Talbot out in Stanford too, but Mark and, and Whitey, like it's, they have everything. They have the facility, they have the coaches, they have the, the money and they have the schools. There's nothing wrong there at all. And maybe it's just a, a little bit of a culture piece, or maybe they're picking one person over another and, and it'll happen soon. But that adds a whole nother curveball into this sort of top four or five, six teams in there for sure. As you scan down the rest of the rankings, like who are some movers and shakers that you see? Yeah, yeah. on the women's side, I really like the Cornell team too. Mark Burke and I are close, and obviously DP and I were close. We're not far from each other out here, and they've added some real quality as well. That Amherst team, Busani's doing a wonderful job, and they're just adding some real quality kids. And Amherst obviously is one of the best institutions on the planet. And our boy, Joey Rahel. Joey is crushing it at Tufts. The school is behind them. The facility is beautiful. I just keep doing what he's doing. And I think we'll see them 
in that top eight conversation pretty soon too. Yeah, there there are a lot of schools out there that are really pushing it with squash. I obviously, frankly, wish that more were, but but yeah, I, I see those three or four as pushing that envelope to be in that top kind of six, seven, eight conversation. Pretty I mean, soon. Look at look at the mass conference, one of the newest yeah. conferences. The only, only, I believe it's the only just squash conference in the country. And if you look right now, they have. I'm looking at it. They have Drexel, you, and in the in their conference, and all both those teams are top top ten in the country. Yeah, yeah, so, and Georgetown too. To me, to yeah. I mean that they're going to have some support, and they're going to get some kids, maybe some transfers, maybe some kids that obviously Georgetown, one of the best institutions on the planet as well. And so, why wouldn't you want to go to Georgetown and play squash? I think the the next step obviously is the facility and right. building that out a little bit, but there's no reason not to go there either. That's another one. Hopefully there's a solid nine, 10, 11 schools in there that maybe buck the traditional schools that have been in that frame, in that kind of caliber recently. Th- thank you for that save too, by the way, for me not mentioning Georgetown. I never would have lived that down so fast. <laughs> If, if nothing else, you just saved me like weeks and weeks of nasty texts from Tim Lasusa. So thank you. Of course, you. of course. Well, I, hopefully, and, well, you, you know, Stanford and yeah. Stanford. Well, yeah. Stanford knows me. Like Mark Talbot could care less. Just what put, I a, say. put a picture of Tim and uh, up on the the little teaser for this episode, and you'll be good. Bill. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Or you two I, playing golf or something. Right? I, I will definitely do that. So <laughs> just, just on the lighter side, looking, I, I was going through because I. I I don't think anybody like really goes through the divisions or like the conferences in squash and looks yeah. at them like, like the Liberty league, the NESCAC and mass. And I think the funniest thing about NESCAC is I went team by team. They've like some of the weirdest nicknames of any conference in the country. It's just me like, what is an F? What's an F? Uh, so an ETH, it's an ETH. It's an um, ETH. What is an ETH? Yeah. So an ETH is uh it's a, uh, it's after a person. It's after the founder of Williams college. If I, if I can't remember exactly, I try not to talk about Williams as a base guy, to be perfectly honest, Bill. So this whole conversation thread is making me a little bit uncomfortable, but okay. yes, it's an ETH um, okay. or as colloquially purple cows, okay. which also is not really a thing either, but whatever. Maybe yeah. out in Williamstown, that is a thing, right? In Williamstown, there are purple cows. Jumbo. Is this because you have beef? With them, um, with the I mean, beef with well, the Eves. Yeah, Williams and Bates. We, Zafi and I, would go back and forth for. We had some epic battles for sure. Yeah, <laughs> shout out to Zafi. I, we, I'm sure the the coaches miss Zafi as well, and they, they probably miss our drama, Zafi and our, I. Yes, our contrarian drama. Yeah, the mammoths, the Eves, the yeah. uh, the mules, the jumbos. The just, jumbos. Just, yeah. It's almost like they they're not even trying. It's the bantams. Well, bantams. Yeah. That's well, kind of normal. Like in in the whole scope of the of Nescax, bantams are normal. The camels are normal. The cardinals or the cardinal. You, so the next la- layer to this bill, I'm sure. I know you have a lot of time on your hands. Go back <laughs> into each of these eleven schools uh-huh. and go into what they were originally named. Really? These names that we're talking about now are like as of like the 60s or 70s or 80s. So originally, oh my, I know. Like yeah. we we've got conspiracy theories now. We got rabbit the holes. The we thing. got yeah, yeah. Go De- back, Denison. Yeah, because Denison went through this evolution. We were the Big Red Indians, which yeah, that, naturally can, went through the yeah. hey, we we shouldn't do that. We then went to Big Red, and then there's a period of time. Hey, let's figure this out. One year. They just announced we're the big red buzzards out of nowhere, <laughs> out of nowhere, big red buzzards. We're like, what? And they're like, forced it on there. They're even out of nowhere. This sculpture that was like carved out of a, a tree with a buzzer was there on a college campus. How long do you think it lasted <laughs> that it remained intact? Yeah, one, question. Week, one weekend, right? Two nights, it, two nights. No, t- to be fair, guys, it was actually four months. But wow. then one month came, then it was the headless buzzard. <laughs> and and then and then they just pulled it back. You're like, that didn't take traction and went back to the big red. And I think there's been talk of pushing it again. But <laughs> Sorry, got us off track there, guys. So back to, just quickly back to the women, top women players in on the team. We know we've lost Farida Mohammed, not playing for yeah. Columbia this year. So she would have been one of the top players. So right now, just looking again at ratings and at past history simi chan obviously is back for columbia the defending women's champ 
Marina Stefanoni coming off her just stellar bronze level bronze medal performance at the Pan Am Games and Megan Best down at UVA. Yeah. Anyone else jump out to you, Pat, on the women's side? And maybe a player not from one of the big schools. Because at, at Bates, I remember when you were at Bates, you had the top male player in the country at, at a team that wasn't ranked in the top eight. Yes. So I'm not terribly well-versed, although I know that there are some quality players at Cornell. And again, I Leah at Cornell is just an amazing player. She's obviously compatriots with Masiva. And I think she she can make a dent in some play. Yeah, the VA women down there, I think, are strong. Drexel, Alina Bushma, I think, is back. Is that right? For a fifth year? I think she's back. And yeah, I don't know about all the way down. I think they're Rafa Buha at, at here at, at William Smith, who I coached for a year. I and mean, she's a quality player, probably top 40, 45 in the country. If she can put some things together and stay healthy, for sure, she can make a run to that top 32. That top 32 is tough. It's yeah. really tough. And these are players, Sarah Nagim at Harvard, these are players that are national champions that are coming from PSA challenger events. And, and so it's really tricky. Uh, and hey, you, Pat, you need, you, Pat, I'm glad you're not well-versed in this, by the way. You need, <laughs> you need somebody else on your team too. That's the key. When we, when we had the two hashtag, the two Ahmeds at Bates, you need a sparring partner every night. And so that's what the, that's what the top teams have Stanford and Harvard and Yale and Princeton. That's what they have. And that's sometimes what the lower teams don't have, or the mid range teams don't have. They'll have one stud or maybe one six O player. And then the next level is a five O and that's tough. That makes the difference. As I was saying in last week's podcast at the Ivy league championships, seeing the two players who had just competed in the burnt squash championship, a satellite right. PSA event playing in the Ivy league scrimmages, Malataha. From you, Penn. Um, totally. Again, my favorite dish, I Indian dish too, by the way, chicken malataha. <laughs> just, just, just a coincidence. So, a coincidence, exactly. Just, uh, just a coincidence. Moving on, let's move on to the men, only because we're going on a long time. On to the men, again, I think there's no doubt, and I say there's no doubt, like this is a Bill Buckingham lock mm. of the year. Yes, national, cha- national champions, men's division, university, Harvard University. <laughs> the University uh- of Harvard? The University uh, of Harvard, the- Harvard University, and after Harvard University wins the championship, my jinx will be completely over with, and there won't be a Bill Buckingham oh, jinx man. any longer. Thoughts on that, guys? Bill, I think so. Is this because I'm yes. not and Gilly's not on this pot? Is that why you're saying this? Because 100 percent the case. Okay. Gilly, okay. when when I mentioned Mike Squash Way being named after Mike Way because all of the time he. <laughs> He beat Gilly. That, that, that didn't go over great on the UPenn campus. You know, you know that every time he walks that walk, he thinks of you as well. For, for sure. So, so I did tell him that if he beats Harvard this year, they will name it uh, Squash Lane. Oh, there you go. There you go. Lane the third. Squash Lane. Skill Squash Lane the third. Exactly the case. So where I am, Bill, I all the things I just said about Mike and, and Luke and Hamid are, I believe, I think that there's a huge work ethic and culture piece they're they're fit those guys are focused they just are they're top and they have been for a long time now i think that we are underestimating both the trinity bantams i'm mm-hmm. not just saying that because i paul and i are, are friends and i also this may be a little controversial i happen to hail from this great state great country of new jersey i think that we are underestimating the princeton tigers Interesting. I, so I think is, Princeton, is Princeton going to play more than seven matches this year? Or are they just going to they're going to play early December matches think, and then take off till February? I think they've used some of the billion dollar construction money to, towards scheduling and hotel rooms and, and meal money, and they're playing a couple more matches this year. Good for them, yeah. Bravo, Princeton. But no, I, I in all, all seriousness, and Sean also is a Bates Bobcats. We go back, but he they're doing great things. They have the infrastructure. They're building courts, which I think is amazing as well. Jadwin is a terrible, tough place to play. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. they have that, right? I think we all know that. And, and they have some studs. They, Kareem was back, and they have some studs. They have some – Hollis is now on the team, and he'll fight. They have some skill up there. And I think that if they can stay healthy – they had some injuries last year too. If they can stay healthy and they stay focused and they obviously come together as a team and all that, we might see them – in that top two or three seed 
come so, come nationals. And you never know. Trinity and, and Penn and, and Princeton, they all showed that at, at nationals last year, that once you get in that top four and you're in that semifinal or that top eight and you're playing there on that Friday night or that Thursday afternoon or whatever it is, anything can happen. And you, I think you guys talked about the Ivy scrimmages. I've heard some, for coaches as well that Princeton was on display there. We'll see. I don't know. I'm not ruling out Gilly's Penn team. I'm not saying Harvard's not going to win. I'm saying that I think that Princeton might surprise some people and Trinity certainly will. So if you had to say, based on what you just said, mm -hmm. like predictors of who could be national champion and not just like a good run, I'm talking about like actually contending yeah. could go all the way. How many teams do you think are in the mix this season? Four. Four. I'm looking at, I'm looking at Harvard, Penn, Princeton, Trinity. And I'm looking at, I'm looking at UVA Drexel, Drexel UVA, in that order. And I will, again, not saying this because I'm in the Finger Lakes now, but Cornell in there at some level. Like they just had a, a sort of a major injury, but I think Cornell at some level in there over, what do you, over Dartmouth, what, over Columbia, over, yeah. With the adjustment of the top 12 being in the national championship, is that going to impact that weekend at all? In terms of like how these teams perform, is it going to favor the top seeds? Is it all equal? What are your I thoughts? Think, I think what impacts that weekend is rest, recovery, culture going into that part of February. I think if you, it, again, obviously, if you have injuries, you're screwed, right? Because that just drops somebody out. Other people step up. That's an uncomfortable position, harder matches, blah, blah, blah. That's obvious to everyone. If you're healthy and you're rested, you're recovered, you have the, that mentality that I'm playing for my boys or I'm playing for my women. That just, that's the thing with college squash. You guys have said it a million times. The spirit, the passion, the drive, that's what you don't see at junior individual tournaments or even some PSA events, you, individuality out there, which is great. And the top guys are motivated and they're self-driven and all that. The difference between college squash and that is that in college squash, you are doing it for the person next to you. And you go out and you sometimes ref and you mark and then you watch that person lose and you say, oh crap, now I have to win because he lost. And that is something that you can't put a number on that. Some guys are like, okay, anything for the boys, right? That, that FTB, that's what, that's for the Bantams. That's, that's what Paul, that's what they created. And that's why I, as long as, he, again, I'm not blowing smoke up coaches, but as long as he's in that office, you can't rule that out. Go yeah, ahead, I, I think... The culture piece, when Trinity's coming in there for the boys at the end of the year, I don't think you can put, I don't think, there's no price tag on that. There's no metric on that. I think you see Princeton and Trinity in the final. Not to say that Harvard and Penn don't deserve to be there. They will be there. Three, but four? I, 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 They're at the I three, four see, is what you're I saying? Think I think I see something different this year, for sure. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's, there's so many variables. We're talking in November and this is four months away. So there's a lot of green, right, Bill? There's a lot of green. There's a yeah. lot of room. There's a lot of things that can happen between now and then. Injuries, illness, academic stuff, the whole thing. I think Trinity, Princeton's back. If those guys can stay healthy and they start to fight and really believe, I think that you'll see Princeton and Trinity in the final. With that said, Penn has the skill. Penn has the rankings and the rating and the whole thing. And they may be there for a long time, too. I don't... I. And again, Harvard, I know I'm saying the same thing over, but Harvard, like, how can you say, how can you count out the defending national champions as a four or five, whatever year? But I do like the Trinity culture for one more year for coaches last year in that office, maybe. And I like Sean's Princeton team. To speak on culture and what can happen on the weekend, like I experienced that myself when we're Denison and we made it to the finals of the division two. So we're playing Penn in the finals. And going into the finals weekend of the final day, we had a guy who had broken curfew twice and we benched him yeah, going yeah. into the finals. And I think actually had we not benched him and which put more pressure on everyone at the bump up, I think he was at the six spots, everyone had to bump up one position. And we rallied behind that. We used that as a motivator, not as a deflator of, hey, look, we're saying what's important to us on a culture perspective. We value the commitment we made to the team. This guy broke that commitment just by curfew. Yeah. He's out. And we all rallied and we won 5 4. Yeah. So yeah. we were down 4 2. It was one of the epic moments down 4 2, coming back 4 4. And yeah, it was good. Bill, it was Bill good. Q, Q Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen right now. 
<laughs> exactly. I love um, it. So a lot of decent early season matchups coming up. And I want to yeah. especially highlight University of Virginia. Looking at their schedule, their pre-Christmas schedule is it's just unreal. So they play, I'm going to go tomorrow to watch them play Yale up at, up at the Brady Squash Center. But so this weekend they play Williams and Yale. But before Christmas, they also play Columbia, UPenn, Drexel, and Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're, there must be not, something going yeah. on. Maybe somebody's leaving in January or something, right? Yeah, no, I think I love it. I think it's great. I think you guys talked about this a couple of weeks ago that generally teams don't haven't been doing that, and they wait either for somebody to come back in January or they just ease into it and all that. I think it's great. It's something I always tried to do with my teams that you just play some tough matches, even if you lose. The way that this is a really interesting piece, and I think it will change, but it still hasn't changed yet is that you can lose a match in November and December. Yeah, your ranking goes down, but nobody cares. That doesn't mean anything. As long as you get into that top eight or the ninth or 16 or whatever it is, in this case, it's top 12, you still have a shot in February. And so if you lose, it doesn't hurt you to lose to Harvard. It actually helps you because now you see the gold standard and you can, as a coach, you can say, all right, guys, this is how far away we are from where we want to be. And so these are the things, these are the steps that we need to take between now and January, between now and February. I think it's really smart by Mark Allen. I think it's really smart. Drexel's doing the same thing, right? Princeton scheduling Drexel. Yeah, I think it's really smart to, to play some of those really challenging matches and to test your team and to talk about, it. I'm sure they're talking about it, that, hey, we might go down or we, whatever, but let's see where we are. Let's use it as a barometer. And Stanford, looking at Stanford belonging to to Mask and looking at all the other teams in Mask, none of them are out by Stanford. So the the, the travel that they have to endure to get quality matches, I, yeah. I don't know if that, I don't know if that strengthens you or it's more. Wow, these kids like obviously going to Stanford is not no easy task. It's a rigorous academic uh, program they have there. So to have to fly back and forth across the country that many times during the squash season, it has to be rough on those kids. Yeah, absolutely. Mark and I have talked about that too, where the, those students are, are some of the, the smartest students you'll ever meet as well. And so they have it figured out, but it just the time in the air and, and the time away from the classroom. But you saw what Victor did, what Victor and, and Siva, did last year and they're traveling around the world. They're completing their academics. They're doing it. Even Yusuf at Princeton, same thing. Those guys are traveling literally around the world, getting on a plane, coming back, playing for their school, getting on a plane, going over across seas to play in a PCA event and completing their academic commitments. These are really top student athletes and really bright kids. But you're right, Bill. Time in the air and time away from the comforts of your dorm room. Yeah. Hey, Pat, just a quick note. We try not to say, Bill, you're right. So just... <laughs> I like So, so obviously, any notes to wrap this up, guys? We're looking forward to the college squash season. As Connor and I talk about, and Pat, obviously, by your enthusiasm, it, it shines through. College squash is the best part of squash in the United States by far. We're all big PSA fans for sure, but college squash is is really what we look forward to the whole season. I I think I'll just say a couple things. I think I'm bummed. I'm not going to be right there this year and I'm excited to watch from the sidelines but there have been some other coaches that have stepped aside as well and I think they should be recognized as well and Jamie King at Hamilton absolute legend a gentleman of the game stepped aside he's still there helping Aaron Robson who took over for him he's giving pickleball lessons he's I think a level two pickleball certified coach now <laughs> which probably doesn't surprise anyone to hear that he's doing PE courses and on the whole thing lunchtime, nooner, nooner pickleball. Right. And Craig Thorpe Clark obviously has stepped into a role helping other coaches become certified and all that. Just another legend gentleman of the game. Chris Fernandez moving over to Columbia, I think is a, an amazing move for him. I think that Columbia team will continue to improve and push as well. I didn't mention that earlier, but I think they'll continue to push up the rankings. But yeah, I think it's really important to understand that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And we're going to see some results and they might shock some people, uh, especially early in the year when kids come in maybe not as fit as they should be, or maybe they're, the team has a couple students abroad, or right? There's some lineup stuff. I think things will even out a little bit as you get into the middle to the end of January. And then I think the conference tournament, the conference tournaments that first weekend of February will be important. But this November, December, I'm just, I'm excited to watch it because I think we're going to see some upsets. We're going to see some shock results. 
but college squash is a marathon, a sprint. I also hope that we can figure out a way to curb some, curb some of the behavior and the sportsmanship. I think that's really important. That should be a priority this year. You guys have mentioned it. Some of it is just appalling and not acceptable and is a bad look for our game. And I'd really love to, to help with that if I could, but, but also the coaches need to step up and, and play a role there too. But yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited about this year and I appreciate you guys having me on to talk about it. One of the things, just before I'm going to slip my mind, and I know Bill would be very much remiss if he didn't ask this question, doubles championship predictions. College yeah. squash doubles championship predictions? College squash doubles nationally. So the Naval Academy, that, this <laughs> is something, they have banners in their building. You guys have probably seen these, mm-hmm. where they rec- they officially recognize national championship doubles teams. Any school that goes to that effort to spend a couple hundred dollars to put a banner up recognizing doubles national champions, I, clearly that's a priority for them. I will, I'm going to say that there's going to be a team. We don't know who, obviously. There's going to be a team for Penn and there's going to be a team from Navy playing in the national championship for doubles. <laughs> I don't know when that is. Maybe it's in June sometime on some side court at the Spectre Center or something. I don't know. But the Naval Academy will capture the doubles national championship. So for the women, yep. So for the women, I'm gonna, I think I'm, I think I'm gonna go with Trinity. I think I'm gonna go with Trinity. And for the men, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go Princeton over Trinity in the final. Pat, thank you very much for being on this broadcast. Rarely are we sponsored, but we'd like to thank the Trinity Propaganda Network for sponsoring this podcast. <laughs> go Vance, uh, go Vance, Vance on too. Shout out to Coach. We should stop right now. We should right. stop right now. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That was. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.